So we're going to get into the book of Hebrews tonight. Uh, chapter 1. This is actually one of my favorite parts of the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is actually one of my favorite books in the Bible. You may not have studied it very much. I don't know. You get into the middle, like around chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, and it gets, well, it seems a little convoluted if you don't really know a lot about the Old Testament. Um, but there's some really wonderful things. And I think one of the things that I've noticed about students that come to Belmont, many students that come to Belmont, and particularly the ones that might come check out RUF early on in the school year, uh, have come probably from church backgrounds. They've maybe have gone to church some or know Christians, and probably they're familiar with certain kind of Christian lingo, like being saved and maybe even justification and some of these kind of Christian words that you hear, right? And for a lot of people, when they think about the gospel, they think about how because of sin, mankind is guilty, and God sends Jesus to live and die in the place of sinners to take away our guilt and to give us his righteousness, all of which is true, all of which is awesome. But the book of Hebrews actually complements that picture by adding a relational axis that's a little different than the way the Apostle Paul tends to talk about it in terms of guilt and justification. It's not different, but it complements and fleshes out something that I think is really important, particularly for people who've grown up in Christian churches. Because a lot of people that have grown up in Christian churches basically have been taught one way or the other that the reason God saved you is so that you could serve him. That we've been saved to serve. Sometimes you'll even see that on a t-shirt or maybe like a, you know, a, a bumper sticker or something. But in reality, while there is work to do in the kingdom, what the Bible says from beginning to end is that God saves us so that he can have a relationship with us. And the book of Hebrews actually really digs into this a lot. The book of Hebrews is, is all about access. Getting into the Holy of Holies, into this deep, rich, relational place with the one who made you. It's not just about being not guilty. It's about being welcomed home. It's about access. And that's important because I think a lot of us just tend to think of like either God likes me or he doesn't like me. Either I'm pleasing to him or I'm not pleasing to him. But the book of Hebrews says, no, there's more to it than that. He wants to marry himself to you. And he's been saying that from the very beginning of the Bible. So let's read chapter 1 of Hebrews. I'll read it uh, for us. You can follow along. And then I'm going to unpack what's going on here in this first chapter. Amazing stuff. We have a God who speaks and does more than speak. And that's what we get here in chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, as you're reading this passage, you get to verse 4 and you're like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. What's the, what's the whole thing about the angels? I'm going to talk about that at the end. But then the writer goes through and he quotes a bunch of Old Testament passages 
to show that Jesus is superior to the angels. As a matter of fact, one of the themes of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is superior. He's superior to the angels. He's superior to the Mosaic law. He's superior to the Abrahamic priesthood. There's all these things that Christ is superior to. And I'm going to tell you what the big deal about that is as we get to the end. But just follow with me here as I read verses 5. So, so he's basically saying, here, well, I'll just tell you. It'll make it easier as we read it. The angels are things that some of the, the Jews in the first century were tempted to worship. So when you think about the angels here, what, what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, like there are things that vie for your heart's affection. Things that you may think are more beautiful and believable than Jesus. Let me take you by the hand and show you how the Bible can teach you to trash talk your idols. And that's what he's doing. Look at here. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. You see, he says that about Jesus. He never says that about the angels. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, God says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So they're merely ministers. They're not God. Verse 8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And, another quote, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So he never says that about the angels. He never says that about anything that you think is better than Jesus. Verse 14, are they, meaning the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let me pray briefly and then we'll go back over this passage and see what God has for us. Lord, we do thank you that you speak, that you don't just leave us wondering what you're like, what you care about. We thank you. Help us to never take for granted that you have spoken and you've not stuttered and that you've done more than speak. You've sent your son to die to make purification for sins. And he is more beautiful and believable than anything that would vie for our heart's affection. May you open our eyes to see that tonight. And to that end, send your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this actually is a sermon, the book of Hebrews. It's different than a letter. It doesn't start out like a letter with greetings. It's basically a sermon. There's all kinds of references all through the letter to listen, pay attention to what you've heard, all these sorts of things, okay? So it has a little, a little more grandiose style, and it starts out with this kind of grand opening. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. Here's the, the first point. And, and this is one of the central rocks, I guess, that RUF is built on, is that God 
speaks. The idea of God speaking is axiomatic to Christianity. If you want to understand Christianity, you have to, you have to know that that's what the Bible says all the way through. Now, we could get into all that, well, it was written by men. And all, we can talk about that. I'd love to talk about that over a cup of coffee. Um, I'd love to do that. That's why I love this job, because people have all kinds of great questions. And I'd love to interact with you about that. But you, you've got to see here that speaking, it's not a new Christian idea. It's been going on for a long time. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a God who speaks. The fact of God speaking is axiomatic to the Judeo-Christian tradition. It all began with a word. Do you remember Genesis? It began with a word. Let it be. And it was. Everything fell apart when mankind refused to listen to a word. Do not eat. God pursues mankind with a word in the form of a question when they're hiding. Where are you? And a promise in Genesis 3.15 the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Speaking, God speaking is axiomatic to Christianity. And it shouldn't surprise us. You know why? Because speaking is pretty basic to any rich relationship. God created us not just to be his little worker bees, but to have a rich relationship with us. And so it shouldn't surprise us that speaking has always been part of that relationship. The Bible says that Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day, and it's a picture of rich relationship. Do you ever go on a walk with one of your best friends or somebody maybe you hope would become a friend? Right? It's a, it's a wonderful thing, and that's the picture you have of God, not of Adam and Eve like scurrying around trying to make sure he didn't blast them. No, it's let's walk together, let's be together, right? God has been speaking from the very beginning. And he's really been speaking the same thing over and over for a long time, and we need to hear it. Here it is. This is the secret to the Bible. God says, I want to marry myself to you, my people. As a matter of fact, it says it's really explicitly like this in Isaiah 54.5. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. If I was ever going to have a tattoo, maybe this would be it. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to do that because I'm too scared. <laughs> but it says that your maker is your husband. And if you can hold those two ideas together, you'll go a long way towards understanding Christianity. There is one who made you. And he made you to live in a particular way. There is such a thing as human flourishing. And God is not just saying, well, whatever you want to do, it doesn't matter, however you want to live. No, he made us for a particular person. There is a way that he's called us to live, and he hasn't left us wondering about it. He speaks clearly in his word about how we are to live. But your maker is your husband. He loves you deeply, richly. And now for a lot of people, they tend to think either he's one or the other. God is the one who made us, and we better not step out of line or he's going to squash us. Or they think, well, he loves us, and he doesn't really care what we do. Of course, I don't really think of that as very much a loving kind of relationship. I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship with somebody that said they loved you and didn't care at all about what you did. It's not really very rich, is it? So God has been speaking, and he's been saying for over and over and over again, I want to marry myself to the people. But here's the thing. 
The fact that God spoke at many times and in many ways is actually a remarkable picture of grace. Think of it this way. The Bible shouldn't have went on past Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, refused to listen to his gracious word, set themselves in opposition to him, he comes and he pursues him. He says, I'm not going to let this alliance you've made with the serpent against me stand. I'm going to put enmity between you and the serpent where you put an alliance, and I'm going to put an alliance between you and me. I'm going to continue to pursue you, and I am going to marry myself to you. And the Bible goes on, Genesis chapter 4. But God's people again and again and again don't listen. Every chapter in the Bible is a miracle that the next one actually happens. God has been speaking. See, even in these verses, he's been speaking long ago at many times and in many ways. And don't you understand? That's because God is continuing to pursue people who don't listen. That's why. And it's been going on for a long, long time. Understand something about the character of God from that. Remember the big picture story of redemption. God continually speaking to people who don't listen and continually saying, I will be your God, you will be my people. And this speaking culminates, he says, in Christ. Look at verse 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Do you see the sense of culmination? He was speaking, but now in these last days, sorry left behind books, the last days began with the coming of Christ. And it culminates in Christ. There's a, there's a sense of it's building, 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 and boom. Christ is the exclamation point of what God has been saying over and over again. I will be your God. You will be my people. As a matter of fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians that all the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ. Whatever promises God has made, they are made and they are kept in Christ. So God has been speaking this reiterated promise over and over and over again. All the promises culminate in Christ, and that actually changes the way you read the Bible. I know some of you are probably going to take an Old Testament class this year. Maybe you already have. Here's what you need to understand. There is a central point to the Bible. It's not just a bunch of random stories that happen to get stuck together by some unknown person that put it all together. We can talk about that over coffee if you want to go deeper into that. But here's the point. There is a central story that all the little stories find their place in that big story. And it changes the way you read. Any of you guys ever read the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones? Yeah, it's wonderful. So she basically, you know, kind of took like Tim Keller's Old Testament sermons and then wrote them in this beautiful uh, beautiful way. Here's what she says in the beginning of that book, in the intro. Maybe you've never heard this. She says, the Bible isn't a book of rules a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the ones he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in the puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. That's what the Bible is. God has been speaking from long ago in various ways, and now this speaking culminates 
in this baby the one who is the true king, who lived and died and is now raised again. That's the speaking. Now the question is, are we listening? Right? Now it's easy for a preacher to get up and say, well, you don't read your Bible enough. I don't either. And it's good for me to be reminded that God wants a rich relationship with us. And what kind of relationship can we have if we never listen to what he says? And there's different ways. Some, some people, we just neglect it. Some, we've had real kind of issues raised that make us wonder whether we can trust the Bible or believe that it's God's word at all, right? I hope you'll feel welcome in RUF wherever you're at in that. And I hope that actually the beauty of the big picture will draw you in because it's really, it's really amazing stuff. You know, there's a lot of people who be like, well, you know, my relationship with God, we're okay because I haven't killed anyone after all. <laughs> you know, but what if God wants more from you than just you going through life without killing somebody? Right? God speaks not because he wants to just boss people around, but because he made us for deep, rich relationship. And so, the, the, you know, if he's speaking, are we listening? You know, um, I posted a little video to our uh, Belmont Area Facebook group about some Chinese Christians getting the Bible for the first time. It was amazing. It reminded me of actually a story that I myself experienced. Uh, I was actually playing in this Christian rock band years ago, back when I had a perm mullet. Um, <laughs> could never afford a full perm, but for 50 bucks they said they would perm just the mullet. Um, yeah, yes, yeah. There are pictures, so I can't deny it. Well, I, I was actually in Russia playing Christian rock music when the Berlin Wall came down. And one night we were playing, and it was very disjointed, this, this whole tour. It was just kind of a mess. There's lots of stories, okay? I'm going to get into that. But there was one night when we're playing, and there's this guy over off the side of the stage, this Russian guy, can't speak any English, and he's just kind of agitated, and you could tell like he wants to, he wants to get up on stage and do something, say something. And we're like, we don't even know who's in charge. So eventually, after about three songs of this guy kind of waving frantically, we like stop our set and we let the guy come up on the stage and take a microphone. And that was the end of our music because he began to preach. I guess he was an evangelist of some sort who just saw an opportunity. And then he said something. I don't know what he said, but all of a sudden, a couple boxes of Bibles appeared from behind the stage and the people went crazy. It was just like that video. Now, I, I remember one of, the, one of the translators said, well, of course they're all trying to get the Bibles because they can sell a Bible in Russia for a year's wage. But I'm like, okay, even if they don't want the Bible for themselves, somebody wants it enough to pay a year's wage. Have you ever, have you ever longed for God's word like that? I don't think I have. But God continues to speak. Isn't that amazing? Like, he continues to speak even though we take his word for granted so much of the time. We should be amazed that God speaks and continues to speak, but we should also be grateful that he did more than just speak. And that takes us into the next little section here. See, Jesus, of course, is a good teacher. But the thing about Christianity is it's not Jesus' teaching that makes it unique. Every religion has teaching and has events. And in every other religion, really, the teaching is the main thing. The events are really secondary. Christianity is just the opposite. If the events that Christianity proclaims happened didn't happen, then the teaching is worthless. 
Christianity, the teachings point to the events. A bloody cross and an empty tomb. And if those things didn't happen, the Bible itself says, then those of us who are following Christ are of all people to be the most pitied. What did Jesus do that was so important? Well, the way they say it here, he made purification for sins and then he sat down. Do you know why that's so rich? Because it says that he sat down. Do you know what that means? That means he's done. That means that work finished the work. Jesus doesn't just make us savable. He lives and dies in the place of sinners and saves people. What Jesus did is not waiting for you to do your part, to join with his part. What Jesus did, he made purification for sins and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. In Christian theology, we call this idea justification. And justification means being beautiful in God's sight because you've done everything that he requires from the heart. And while none of us do that, Jesus did that. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you get credit for the life and the death that Jesus lived. That great old Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, said it so well. Upon a death I have not, sorry, upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I have not died, I stake my whole eternity. That's the heart of Christianity. And this is vital to know when we're suffering. You know why? Because if you don't know that Jesus did everything to make God smile at you, then when trials come, there's really only one of two choices you're going to have. You're either going to think that you don't deserve it, and you'll be mad at God, or you'll think you do deserve it, and you'll be mad at yourself. The only way to find true peace in trials is to know that they're not an expression of God's judgment, because Jesus took that judgment, drank the cup of God's wrath to the very dregs, finished the work, and sat down. That's why Christians endure suffering in a different way. It's also vital to know this for living. Because living the Christian life, listen, if you don't hear anything else I say, hear this. Living the Christian life while remaining unsure of the finished work of Jesus is not really living the Christian life at all. Romans chapter 1 verse 5 says, speaks about the obedience that comes from faith. Christianity is not about living the best you can and hoping that God will be pleased with you. It's not about that at all. As a matter of fact, Christianity, Judgment Day, starts the week. Sunday, the week begins with Sunday because the judgment has been done and it begins with rest. You rest before you work in the Christian understanding of things, right? This is vital to know. The Christian life is not about trying to get God to like you. You know, do you ever hear that hymn, Rock of Ages? Augustus Toplady wrote this great hymn, Rock of Ages. It's one of, you know, the top ten hymns in various polls about the greatest hymns ever written. And it actually had a really interesting title when it was originally written. He wrote this hymn in the 1700s, and he called it A Living and a Dying Prayer for the Holiest Believer on Earth. It's quite a mouthful. But it's important to know, this is the prayer you need to live and the prayer to die. And here, this verse, I love this verse, maybe you've heard this. Could my zeal no respite? No. That means even if your zeal never rested or it never had a pause, you could be fired up for Jesus all the time. Even if your zeal no respite? No. The next line, could my tears forever flow? Even if you could weep over your sin the way you should, 
All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. There's nothing that you're going to do either before or after you become a Christian that is going to change what God thinks about you because Jesus lived and died in the place of sinners. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's good news. And that is something that can help you live and help you die. But we have to keep these two things together, the speaking and the dying. And let me show you why that's important. If you lose the connection between the speaking and the dying, you really lose Christianity. See, if you think that he speaks, you think that he speaks, but you're not really sure that he did everything necessary to cleanse us from our sins, or if you believe that he died, but he doesn't really care to speak to us about how we live, then you lose Christianity. You have to have both of these things. Check these things out, actually, if you're visiting churches, by the way. You want churches, I think, that make much of the speaking of God and the dying of Jesus, and that are based on those things. RUF will always be about these things. We're always going to preach from God's Word. We're always going to sing songs, even some of these weird old hymns, because they're so focused on the gospel, and they're so honest about struggle. We think that's important. If you only believe that Jesus, that God speaks without believing that he really purged our sins, then you're probably like a lot of people that have grown up in evangelical churches in America. They believe that God tells them what to do, and every time they go to church, they just hear more and more stuff they're supposed to do, and they feel worse and worse and worse about themselves. As a matter of fact, there's a guy, Richard Loveless. He was a professor. Um, he was actually a theology professor for this guy, Tim Keller, if you've ever heard of Tim Keller. And um, Loveless said this, that if you are a Christian who doesn't really understand justification by faith and you're not really appropriating it, if you don't, you're not sure that God smiles at you because of what Jesus did, then actually psychologically you're worse off than an unbeliever. Because every time you go to church, every time you open up your Bible, every time you get together in a little Bible study or pray with people, you're just hearing constant reminders of all the stuff you should be doing that you're not doing. If you don't hear it as, this is what Jesus died for, and this is what Jesus did in my place, and that sets me free to love God and to seek to honor him. If you don't hear that, then the more you're around Christian stuff, the worse you feel. And maybe some of you are at that place. I find a lot of Belmont students, by the time they get to college, they're kind of at that place. They're kind of tired of trying to earn the smile of God all the time. And sometimes they go kind of, off the deep end and sort of like, uh, you know, nuts to that. I don't want to keep trying to live that way. And, and people are like, oh, they need to really, you know, get a good kick in the pants from God. It's like, no, what, probably what they really need to understand is God's grace. Because most of the time they're really bitter and mad at God because they think he's this demanding taskmaster who's never satisfied. And they need to understand that Jesus fully satisfied everything God asked for from his people. Well, if you believe the Bible is uh, God's word, without seeing Jesus as the one who lived and died in the place of sinners, it'll crush you to read the Bible. And of course you'll want to quit reading it. You will. You will. Well, if you believe he died, but you aren't sure that he's spoken truly and authoritatively, you've got a problem as well. This is what we call cheap grace. It's the idea that Jesus lived and died for me, but he doesn't really care how I live because he just loves me. But again, have you ever been in a relationship with somebody who said they loved you? and didn't really care how you lived? It doesn't feel very strong, does it? 
It doesn't. What kind of a relationship can you have with a God who doesn't care how you live? What you think about God's word has huge implications for how you know his love. Cheap grace might seem convenient, and there are times when every one of us wishes it were true, but God, God's love is not this empty love. Have you ever gotten warm fuzzies by being tolerated? <laughs> it's a far cry from love that stands in your way. And that brings us to the last part of this chapter. And here's how we end this. All that stuff about the angels. Because here's the thing. God has spoken. Jesus has died. Those are the central pillars of what Christianity is all about. In RUF, we want to teach you basically three things. Can't teach you everything in the Bible in the course of four years. But if you stick around with us, we hope that you will learn about justification by faith, that you'll learn about God's word, what it's like, how to study it. And we hope that you'll learn how to grow as a Christian. And that gets us to the end of this passage, because this end of this passage is all about growing. It's all about what we call sanctification. And the heart of that is this. We live in a world with lots of competing words that are very powerful. We mustn't be naive. We mustn't be naive. Do we see Jesus as more beautiful and believable? That's my prayer whenever we gather together, is that Jesus will become more beautiful and believable to us. It's why we sing the songs that we sing. It's why we get together and, 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 and live life together. And where do you see that in this text about Jesus becoming more beautiful and believable? Well, I showed you. It's the idea of the angels. If there was anybody that you would be tempted to worship, it would be angels. Now, I don't know, maybe you've seen that, that silly show, Touched by an Angel. You know, in, in, in popular culture, whenever angels show up, they say, oh, they're there, it's okay, I'm here now. That's not how biblical angels speak. When biblical angels show up, there's one thing that they almost always say first. Do you know what it is? Fear not. Because they're frightening. Right? <laughs> Duh. Angels are, are awesome beings, okay? And if you would be tempted to worship something that seems tangible and real and powerful, it would be angels. Especially in comparison to some guy who died on a cross like a common criminal, right? As a matter of fact, at the very end of the book of Hebrews is to say, we have to go outside the city gate to the place of shame because Jesus was crucified outside the city gate in a trash heap. Let's go meet him there. That's what it means to follow Jesus. But we don't like that. We would rather follow angels and feel powerful. And you probably know Christians and versions of Christianity, they're all about feeling powerful. But that's not true Christianity. The Hebrews were a small group of people that were already suffering persecution in Hebrews, later the letter is going to say that you've already suffered the confiscation of your property, but you've not yet suffered to the point of shedding blood, but it's coming, right? This is not the key to wealth and happiness, but this is truth, and this is real. What do you consider more awesome than Jesus, more reliable, more faithful? The writer of the Hebrew says, look, let me teach you how to use God's word to trash talk your idols. Maybe you think it's good grades. Maybe you think it's getting that record deal. Maybe you think it's the relationship with that guy or that girl. Maybe it's finally getting your parents off your back and you do anything for that. I don't know what it is that you think is more beautiful and believable than Jesus and his love. But what the Bible says is learn how to trash talk your idols. Look and say, you know what? 
Having everybody like me? Man, that may feel good. But when did God ever say your people-pleasing is going to finally make all your enemies sit down at your feet? Did God ever say that? Did God ever say that to your ability to get people to like you? Did God ever say that to your ability to do the right things? No, but he says that about Jesus. If God never said that to your idols, why are you saying that to them? Why am I saying that to my idols? That if I could just be comfortable and get people to leave me alone, then man, that would be awesome. But that, God never says that. And he never says that about your idols either. We must use the truths that God has spoken. See, it's not enough to just know that God has spoken. Do we use the truths? I'm going to close with this uh, lines from this hymn. We didn't have a chance to sing this one tonight, but we will sing the doxology. I, usually we have overhead projector, and I would have had the words. I know some of you may not know it, but we're going to close with that. But I wanted to read these words from this other hymn about idols and about seeing Jesus as more beautiful and believable. This is an old hymn by this I actually don't even know if it's a man or a woman or a Rowan. It sounds like a woman, but I, I really don't know. I need to do some research. Um, what can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? Not a sense of right or duty. It's not enough for you to know what the right thing to do is, but the sight of peerless worth. Tis that look that melted Peter. Tis that face that Stephen saw when he was being stoned to death. The Bible says he saw Jesus, the heavens opened, and he saw Jesus. Tis that heart that wept with Mary can alone from idols draw. I hope that if you hang out with RUF, that that will be true for you, that you will see Jesus as more beautiful and believable, and it will change you. It will wreck you, because that's what we need, and that's what this campus needs. And that's what you need as you go from here to everywhere. <laughs> right? <laughs> you do. This is what you need. Because God wants you to go all over the place. But he wants you to go knowing that your righteousness is because of what Jesus did. Not because of how awesome you are. Let's pray together.